Let's talk books, and Anna Rankin joins us now. Hi, Anna. Kia ora, Jesse. How are you? Good. Looking forward to talking to you as always. And um, sounds like you've got, is it a reprint of a book from the 1970s here? Yes. Uh, so it was reprinted in 2019, I think, or maybe 2020. And it's called The Romance of American Communism by an American essayist, critic, and memoirist. Vivian Gornick, mm-hmm. um, who was a reporter at the Village Voice in the late 60s through to the 70s and has since written 11 books and writes for the New York Times and other outlets um, and teaches nonfiction writing at various universities. Um, <clears throat> she is a very well-regarded feminist and mostly writes memoir and histories of culture um, and she wrote a biography of the quite famous political activist um, Emma Goldman, who was working at the turn of the uh, 20th century, an anarchist saw it. Um, I was introduced to her first through my professor at Modern Letters, who gave me a book called The Situation and the Story, which is a really good book on writing and narrative technique. Yeah. And then uh, I read her memoir, Fierce Attachments, which is pretty famous, and it details her upbringing as a daughter of working-class uh, recent immigrants, who uh, Yiddish-speaking immigrants from Eastern Europe who were communists and what she termed urban peasants. And that book um, is kind of a touchstone for people writing memoir, I think, because it's, well, it's, in, that, in this book in particular, it's a kind of, kind of primal scene of the woman in her life. Her father died when she was quite young, and it's about the different examples of femininity and, I guess, feminism available to her or or otherwise not available to her and Mm -hmm. it kind of details her walking through New York City with her mother and talking and arguing about their past and memories and their competing recollections of it. Um, So I guess a lot of her books are set beneath or within um, a backdrop of urban life and this book is no different. Yeah, and so when she talks to communism, that's not from a detached point of view either. She was right there and then, or her family were at least um, in the, I guess, the peak of communism in America in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, so she was a red diaper baby, and um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what they were called. And um, yeah, so the book, she... I guess you're sort of guided through it in a different way than how you might have been when it first was first published because she has this quite long introduction now that's very discursive and kind of it's almost a dialogue with her younger self, her mm. more idealistic self. And at times she almost cringes about about um, the book, but then she's still, I think there's a sense she's still quite proud of herself and her youthful idealism. And you can see when you're reading it, um, uh, the the difference between the older Vivian and the younger that she still carried the hallmarks of being a real zealot and um, throughout her life and she's she's a polemicist I would say in a lot of ways and she has retained that sense of zealotry and I think the central theme of the book I guess is when vision becomes dogma or when something really expansive that freed you becomes hardened and mm. That's true in lots of things, namely, you know, when, and when faith becomes doctrine or something like that. Um, so the introduction presents this hindsight view, but the book itself is um, 
So for a year, she travels the United States speaking and interviewing, um, speaking to and interviewing former communists about their lives and the origins of their political commitments and attachments. And one criteria was that those years had to have had some kind of shaping force. And it leads back to the title, which is um, the romance, because for her, she says the questions really turned on the emotional meaning um, of the political experience. So she's always careful to say um, the effective life, so how it felt, like the emotional life of these people, because I think like, I think for her, she in later life was quite disturbed by the way that that particular history of American communism, which didn't last for that long, had been portrayed in accounts by either ex-communists or people who had never been communists. Mm. Um, so, yeah. It sounded like, I mean, th- there seems like there is so much in this book that might be useful as a way of thinking about our own world in 2023. Um, and one of them might be the fact that, well, there's a couple of things going on. She talks about people finding their purpose in communism, right? They felt mm. like they were changing the world and the strength uh, of conviction that that gives you when you when you feel like you are actually doing something for the whole of humanity. That that really locks you into, I guess, what we'll loosely call an ideology. And and then the I guess the flip side of that, which is that it becomes harder to see when things are going wrong, not just. I think in Russia, where um, you know, where the I think the dream started to uh, fade a wee bit, but but in America as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And she says that, like, she defines it as she defines the communist experience as being a journey towards something that's brilliantly humanizing. But it's the dogma at the end of it that was so soul destroying. And she describes what it was to to grow up within this world that was so vital for her and. There's a really beautiful scene where she depicts um, kind of an evening at their Bronx tenement where party members are sitting around the table talking and arguing, and it dawns on her that understanding things is the most exciting dimension of life. And in the <laughs> scene, she like, <laughs> yeah, so cute. And in the scene, and she's right. And in the scene, she whispers to her mother and she asks, who's who? And she's told, oh, this person's a thinker, that person's a writer, that was a poet. And then she says, you know, later, she says, of course, he drove a bakery truck. She was a sewing machine operator. He was a plumber. And so she saw these people as really really exceeding the limitations that were placed on them. And a lot of these people were first-generation immigrants. And it's the same when she travels around the country and she talks to agricultural workers in California. She talks to people that worked on the docks. And it's this really lovely portrait of, getting into people's inner lives that that allowed them to, as I said, exceed what they were able to do in their days in which they had to make money. Uh, and But also echoing some of the politics of the 21st century is the fact that communism was able to speak to those people. You, you know, you talk about the um, agriculturalists in California, the, the, the communist, the communist party was the one willing to listen to them and, and value them and give them assistance and advice. And, you know, you think of um, some of the other movements that have succeeded because no one else was listening uh, in the US with the working class in particular. Um, really interesting because now you can th- kind of think of communism as something that was always unpopular in America. But for a while there, you know, it was, what, a million plus people 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, How and interesting. you can see why it spoke to the. You can just see why it spoke to those people at that particular moment. If you have a large group of people who are all outsiders in some way, and yeah, have some sense of belonging, yeah. and this is presented to you, then of course. Interesting and worth reading in twenty twenty three. Yeah, I mean, I love oral histories, and I think as you know, because we talk about this with some frequency, but I think it's a really nice way to tell history is through the direct comments yeah. of the people who were there. And um, it's just, it's a picture of a really specific and, as you say, quite brief moment in history. And I should say, at the same time, I'm reading um, a book called Comrade by, um, on Bill Anderson, a New Zealander who was uh, a communist. It's called Comrade, A Communist Working Class Life by... Sibley Locke, and that's by BWB Press, but I haven't read mm. enough of it to to uh, review it, but I am reading that alongside it. The other, other, other observation I wanted to make, you we had a guest on yesterday talking about the future of work and saying that employees aren't really motivated by money, they're motivated by feeling like they're part of something bigger or they're doing something with their lives, and that seems to be another theme of this book that you've been talking about, that although a lot of these people were impoverished and there were lots of threats and worries in the 1930s and 1940s, it sounded like they were almost happiest when they were in the midst of it because they had something to believe in and they were part of something. They were the happiest times of their life for a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I Amazing. think, as you say, it's about making meaning more than making money. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for bringing Thank this you. one to our attention. Cheers. Anna Rankin on Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism, which was re-released in 2020.